Matthew chapter 13, verse 31. A few weeks ago, I mentioned at the beginning of, this, of one of the messages that at the center of the gospel of Matthew, which is the gospel that we're studying as a church, at the center of the gospel, if you were to try, try and draw a circle with a bullseye, on it, it would be all of these stacked up parables from Jesus that talk about the kingdom. Everything that Matthew does points towards the center of this uh, in Matthew 13. And so today, what I want you to do, what I want us to do, is to uh, look through these four remaining parables. We'll leave one out. This will be uh, the parable of the mustard seed, the parable of the leaven, the parable of the hidden treasure, and the parable of the pearl of great value. Because these are four powerful parables on possessing the kingdom. The kingdom is a uh, a strange concept for us. And Jesus has been fleshing it out all throughout uh, Matthew, Matthew's gospel. And, and here we come to parables that show us not how the kingdom grows, not who's a part of it, but it shows us the power and how to hold on to the kingdom. If you've ever wondered, how do I access what God does in me? How, how do I get that thing? Uh, how do I hold on to the blessing? Jesus shows us here in Matthew chapter 13. So um, four parables and I, I want to do it this way. I want to couple two and two together. That way we're not here until 7 p.m. Someone in here is like, four parables. Dan, come on. Relax. We're going to take them two by two because each one of them is a couplet. And um, they, they help. Jesus has designed these to, to, to teach off of each other, to fill in the gaps where one, lefts off, one leaves off, to fill in by contrast with the others trying to say. So uh, do you have Matthew 13 in front of you on your phone or a Bible? Great. Here we go, verse 31. And he put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in a field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it is grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. And then he told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour, till it was all leavened. Now, I wonder if I were to ask you, uh, just casually, you know, what is the connection between um, a mustard seed and leaven? You might scratch your head and go, I like mustard on the bread on my ham sandwiches. Um, that's how I take them. I, I, I don't know. What is the connection between a mustard seed and Leaven, because on first take, these don't seem like they go together. But we need to remember, especially as you look at how Jesus is so intentional as how he teaches, uh, what comes before what is said is very important. These parables are placed by Matthew strategically in his gospel after the parable of the sower and after the parable of the wheat and the tares. And that is not accidental, because uh, in a similar manner, you remember the parable of the sower starts out by saying, uh, sower went out to sow his seed. And here with the parable of the mustard seed, we, we see Jesus saying, a man went out to sow his mustard seed. And here it is a very tiny seed, a single grain of mustard seed that grows into his field. And if you recall the parable of the sower, it's, uh, this is maybe a little recap, but the parable of the sower, the man goes out and sows his seed and uh, only one quarter of the seed finds dirt that is good for growing soil. Do you remember this? Some of the seed grows along the path and it's snatched up by the birds. And some of the seed uh, gets the rocks and it, it, it doesn't grow, take, take root. Some of it is choked out by the thorns. And only 25% of the seed actually hits 
pay dirt, dirt that's good. And um, then the next parable that Jesus tells his disciples is the parable of the wheat and the tares. And if you remember that parable, that's the one where a, a farmer goes out and sows his seed. And uh, in the nighttime, along comes an enemy and he sows different seed that is to ruin the crop and it is very dangerous. And if you're a disciple listening to Jesus tell his stories about the kingdom of heaven, I think you'd be shocked at the rate at which there's opposition to the kingdom. To say, Jesus, wait, the kingdom is like, like a man who sows seeds but only gets 25% of it in the ground. And of that 25%, half of it is going to be ruined because it is tares. So what are we doing here, Jesus? Why is the kingdom against such opposition? There's got to be a better model for this. And it's, it's, it's exactly for this reason, which is that Jesus is essentially teaching us that the, go the gospel will go forth amid opposition, and yet he tells us these two parables, the parable of the mustard seed and the parable of the leaven or the yeast. And it's because perhaps the disciples, having heard Jesus set up this grand vision of the kingdom, seeing the opposition that was against it, might know the despair that was in their hearts and seek for their own good to encourage them with the truth of the power of the kingdom. They may not think the kingdom was some impotent reality, but they may stand amazed at the glory and the prestige of the kingdom of God. I was speaking with a guy yesterday um, about church and about um, specifically evangelism, about how you share your faith. And he was looking for the silver bullet. It was, it was kind of interesting to me. He was saying, how do I guarantee that I can share my faith in a way that people will want it? And I said, well, I, Jesus doesn't say that's going to happen. I remember he looked right back at me. He goes, I can't accept that. God is powerful. There has to be a better model. If your old model's not working, get rid of it. Let's get a new one. And um, I've spoken with many of you here who are in business and have come to faith in Christ and have shared your faith. And I've had one person in particular tell me, you know, the thing that frustrates me the most about Christianity is the fact that I can't close anyone. I can bring them to Jesus, but I can't seal the deal. And lest we get disheartened, lest we think that the kingdom grows on our own accord or in our own power or with our own abilities, Jesus is saying, no, 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 it's going to grow amidst opposition, but I want you to take heart. I want you to understand that there's opposition in the world, that, but you don't have to despair because, check this out, it's, 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 like, a, it's, it's like a mustard seed. <laughs> it's, the kingdom is, is it's like the smallest of the things. It seems very small at the outset, but over time it's going to reveal its tremendous power and triumph to the world. We turn our attention to the parable of the mustard seed first. We catch a glimpse of the power of the kingdom and the reason that power is given to us by Jesus. He says it's the smallest. Look at it there. It's the smallest of seeds. But when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree. Now, um, just for the record, here, here's a picture of a mustard seed super zoomed in. Um, I always get worried for the hand model in these situations. But uh, that's a mustard seed. It's, it's you know, incredibly small. Uh, truth be told, Jesus wasn't entirely accurate because horticulturalists have told us there are smaller seeds than a mustard seed. 
And they've tried to take Jesus to task. They've lobbied theologians to say, hey, Jesus didn't know what he's talking about. He didn't get this right. There's smaller seeds. The poppy seed. Look at the poppy seed. He should use the poppy seed. And uh, we can sometimes in our technicalities miss the point that Jesus is using a, a figurative speech. In this day, to say something was insignificant was to call it a mustard seed. Like a drop in a bucket or a grain, grain of sand on the seashore or a third party candidate in an election, just totally insignificant, right? This is how we use it, but, but they would say, they would say it's, it's like a mustard seed. Oh, that's a mustard seed, right? It's, it's totally insignificant. And so Jesus says, look, a lot of us would look at this seed and it would seem so small, but do you realize that inside encapsulated in this seed is a tree that is bound up and it will dig its roots down into the ground and branches will come out of the ground strong enough that the birds of the air might make nests in the branches. The lesson of the mustard seed is not that we would marvel at, look at how small a seed could be. But instead, look at how disproportionate the growth of this one seed is to the way it started. Look at how gigantic it gets in proportion to what it started as. And Jesus' followers, as, as ragtag as they could be, as small as they were, uh, would have realized that what Jesus was alluding to is the fact that one day this, the seed of the gospel, the seed of the kingdom is going to bear fruit all throughout and everyone around would say, that came from that? And the kingdom of God has experienced mustard seed-like growth since the time of Jesus when he ushered it in over 2,000 years ago. I'm reminded that the gospel tells us that Jesus had 12 disciples and 72 other close followers. Some had means, but very few had tremendous influence over governments, businesses, or even established religious systems. They were scrappy misfits, liars, hustlers, the leader of their group watched his poll numbers skyrocket and then plummet so bad that people were so annoyed with him that they plotted his assassination. And then he died. I wanted to preach a message to you, by the way, that sort of highlights the fact that to get a mustard seed to grow, you actually have to, um, you don't just throw it on the ground, you gotta do something to it. You, you, gotta, you, you gotta almost crush it. You have to bruise it. Then you put it into the ground and, and that bruise and that crushing, it activates it and it allows it to start springing forth. And I don't know, I was just thinking one day in my office, I was like, man, that's such an amazing illustration of what happened to the crushing of Jesus Christ who is the seed of the kingdom, of the, the truth of the gospel, who, who was crushed for our iniquities, who was buried in the ground, but three days later arose out of the grave, stomped out, came back to newness of life, and here he is reigning in righteousness. I wanted to preach that message to you, but I, that'll have to wait for another day. You see, for now, I would just remind you that after Christ came back from the dead, he rallied together his disciples. He brought them all together. He imparted his spirit into them, and he said, you are my disciples. You are my representation, my, my representatives, my ambassadors. And so go, therefore, into all the world and preach and baptize and teach people to obey me. And, lo, I am with you always until the end of the age. And so his disciples, this small group of people went, empowered by the Spirit, and they preached, and they baptized, and they taught people to obey, so much so that you can draw a straight line from Jerusalem all the way to Hobart, Indiana, 2,000 and 
16 years later. The church throughout history, sure, we've had our issues, but if we think about the kingdom of God and what it has accomplished, what has come from this mustard seed of growth, the church has been one of the leading agents in the world on the forefront of medicine, of education, of caring for the poor, of healing the sick. Uh, There were 72 missionaries in Jesus' day, but we have estimates today that living around the globe are 150,000 foreign missionaries working on behalf of Jesus Christ today. That doesn't count people who are in full-time ministry or on staff at a church or or even Christians who live and are the salt and light of, of the earth in their jobs. What Jesus started so long ago as a single small grain has grown into this incredible movement, this incredible kingdom. I'm reminded that uh, empires have tried to take down Christians. That in the first Christians faced such strong opposition against them that um, they had to hide and go undercover, and some of them died horrific deaths. But in just the span of 290 years, Christianity became the legal a recognized religion of the same empire that was trying to kill them previously. Jesus has such tremendous power in this little seed, the gospel, and it goes forth. And we are witnesses to the glory and the grace of the kingdom as it bears its fruit and it grows in our presence. Amen? When we think all about all those things, um, We go, uh, how did something so influential and glorious begin with such meager means as if it were a mustard seed? And yet, it is happening. Which leads us, I think, to the point that Jesus is trying to draw us to out of these two parables, but I'll start with this one. The point is this, is that kingdom power comes from apparent insignificance. Kingdom power comes from apparent insignificance. It may look insignificant to the watching world and They may look at the mustard seed and disregard it as tiny and impotent, and yet it grows disproportionately great in front of their very eyes, and and it plays itself out in the lives of those who follow Jesus in your life in so many different ways. Um, Because as Jesus followers, and maybe you can raise your hands on this, but don't you feel like sometimes as Christians, especially living today, we've got a lot to be sorrowful about? We've got a lot to despair about? We've got a lot to maybe think, well, how is this going today? If the, if the kingdom is like a mustard seed that grows, what's happening today? I hear people uh, often say things to me like, Dan, we've got a crisis. I read online. We've got a crisis. I, I hear that um, uh, more than ever, 18 to 25-year-olds are leaving the church. Um, Dan, uh, we've got a crisis in the church. Did you hear what the Supreme Court Hey, we got a crisis in the church. Do you see how our society is in? And if we're not careful, we might become like the disciples who are prone towards discouragement and despair about what's happening in the kingdom as if, God, what is happening? Why isn't this working better? Can this not be a better way? And and Jesus gives us this encouragement to say, no, 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 listen, listen, listen. The kingdom power comes from apparent insignificance. What is insignificant to the world is not insignificant to me. And he says that if you and I are a part of the kingdom today, two millennia later, this is the exact fulfillment of Jesus' promise that the kingdom operates in this quiet, unexpected power. And so friends, what a comforting reality it is that the kingdoms of this world have come and gone, and yet the kingdom of God has never been wider. 
It has never been stronger. It has never been more powerful than today because it's growing. And in some of our zeal, we want to see the kingdom growth particularly in the areas which we live. But if you were to take a plane ride around the world and go to Latin America or go to Africa or go to Asia, you would see mustard seed-like growth on miracle grow. Just the Lord is blowing his spirit all throughout the world. And so we pray, God, let that happen here. But we also recognize and acknowledge the beauty of what God is doing throughout the world. Amen? Kingdom power, it comes from apparent insignificance. To round the parable out for us, Jesus tells us another complimentary story from another angle. Look at verse 33. You got verse 33 in front of you? Verse 33. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid, three, hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. Where the mustard seed grew in plain sight and is the external power on display of the seed, leaven acts in a very different way. Here we see leaven, it, it's, it's the internal power, it's the internal combustion, it's the, it's the thing in the lump of dough that quietly and slowly impacts all the particles of flour until it is thoroughly changed. In Jesus' day, breaking, or, uh, uh, baking bread was a daily occurrence, and I'm going to vote to bring that back. It's uh, nothing better than the smell of warm bread. And... Um, I wonder if, if the, the women who generally that was a task that women would have done in this day, I wonder if they were sitting nearby listening to Jesus and he says, um, the kingdom of heaven is like a little leaven. Who would have looked at each other and said, leaven, really? I look back and go, huh. Well, I, I guess so. It's so small, I've never, I've never thought about it. And yet they see that God is showing how the leaven affects the bread, it affects the yeast, it, it, it's very small. Here's a picture of leaven, this is also very zoomed in. You can see how small the little kernels of yeast are in there. And here's what leaven does. It's such a small part of the recipe, but bake without it and it's a total disaster. The bread loses texture, the ingredients don't react the same way, nutrition isn't as good. Not a bit of the bread is left unchanged from the leaven, even though it's the smallest part or the smallest bit of the ingredients. And the same is so true of the kingdom. What seems insignificant is actually incredibly potent. The kingdom, it pervades all the nooks and the crannies of our lives, and it takes over. I suggest to you that the message of the kingdom does this in your life in a chain reaction sort of way, just like the particles of bread, just like the dough is being changed one bit at a time throughout the chemical reaction. So God does this in the lives of his Christians, in your heart. I would suggest to you, every time you come to church and you hear God's word open, every time you sit with your Bible and allow God's word to speak to you, every time you saturate your heart and your mind with the words of God, it's like a little leaven that's changing the inside of you. It's affecting you. It's working on you. And so every time you, you come here and maybe you hear something that stands out to you or there's a point that you think is profound or amusing or, or, or really interesting, you, you go from here and you, like leaven and just chain reaction and bread, you go and you tell your friend, hey, you know what I heard the other day? I, I heard this idea about God and it, it made me think about this. And all of a sudden, the kingdom is moving like yeast in bread. It's the chain reaction that's hitting other people. It is moving across the spectrum of our region. But I would suggest to you even more profound. 
how the leaven of the kingdom works in our own souls is every time you walk out of here and you subconsciously allow your decisions and your values to be marked by the kingdom of God, his kingdom is rising up inside of you. His kingdom is having its effect to completely change your heart just like leaven. It was said really well by Richard Trench, who's uh, a 19th century theologian. He says it this way. He says, the power of leaven is that every region of man's being will be claimed as the property of the kingdom until it has brought the whole man into obedience to it, sanctifying him wholly so that he shall be altogether a new creation in Christ Jesus. See, when Jesus gets a hold of a life, it often spreads to change the lives of those around that person. A child comes to faith in VBS or in Awana or on a Sunday morning and, and they go home and they share their faith with their parents and their parents go, man, I've been thinking about that and I, I want that. This is a story of the Jacobson family. That back in the uh, 1960s, there was a pastor who ministered in a church down the street on Colsey Avenue in Schiller Park, Illinois. His name was Pastor Brown. One day, he knocked on the door of my grandparents' home. My grandpa... Otto was at home, and uh, my grandma had gone out to buy some flour or something to make bread with. I don't know. And uh, she was gone, and uh, my grandpa met Pastor Brown, let him in, and uh, Pastor Brown said to my grandpa, he said, Otto, do you know Jesus? He said, I don't, I don't know. You know, we send our kids to this other church, and we want them to have some sort of religious background, but I, I don't think I know. Tell me about him. And so Pastor Brown in the kitchen of my grandfather's house leads him to the Lord. He leaves. My grandma comes back from her shopping trip, and my grandpa says to her, Ingrid, I've got good Norwegian names in my family, he says, Ingrid, you'll never guess what happened while you were gone. <laughs> Pastor Brown came, and I accepted Jesus. And my grandma's response, oh, she's this is great. She goes, Otto, I wish you wouldn't have done that because I wanted to do that too. And so the next week, Pastor Brown comes back to the house on Colsey and he leads my grandma to the Lord. And subsequently, my uncles and my, my dad. And I remember growing up in a family at that same church that Pastor Brown used to be the pastor of down the street from the house that my parents used to live, my grandparents used to live in sitting in the pew with my grandma and grandpa as they were passing their faith along to me. This is how leaven works in the kingdom. It's, it's just the passing of the gospel. It's the change that happens because of the gospels at work in your lives. We see the power is so on display through Jesus. And I wonder if you recognize how significant this is that the kingdom comes from apparent insignificance. But I wonder if maybe it's becoming more significant to you today. And that's, that's actually the topic of the next two parables. I want you to look with me in Matthew 13, 44. Are you still with me? 13, 44. Read with me. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. Everyone loves a good, you know, treasure hunt. Which a man found and he covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. And again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. And so if the parables of the mustard seed and the leaven show us that the kingdom power comes in apparent insignificance, these two parables show us that 
Kingdom possession. Kingdom possession, it comes from ultimate sacrifice. Everybody say ultimate sacrifice. Kingdom possession comes from ultimate sacrifice. Now, um, I've never watched really more than five minutes of this show, but a really popular show on TV called Storage Wars. Have you seen this? It's the most ridiculous premise I've ever seen. You watch an auction of people who have no idea what they're bidding on, and it's probably going to be lawn chairs. Like, they have no clue what's inside of this storage unit. Somebody's abandoned it. Somebody might have died, and they left this, and there's just, it's just somebody's stuff. And people pay thousands of dollars to get at old people's junk. That's a tip in case you um, don't want your stuff. You can just, you know, auction it off to somebody and say, I'll give you whatever's inside, $20,000. Um, recently, I, I was um, online, I read this article of... Um, this company, American Auctioneers, who uh, actually is featured on this show, Storage Wars, they, um, just, just the other day, they uh, were auctioning off storage units, and there's a man who chose only to identify himself as John. You'll see where this is going in a moment. He paid $1,100 for a storage container, and lying in the storage unit was a blue Rubbermaid container filled with rare coins and gold bars. Uh, he, it's estimated that he won half a million dollars. Now before you get out of here and go to the local storage uh, compartment place and ask around for who hasn't paid their dues in a long time, um, A&E, they weren't rolling footage of this and they missed out on the moment to see someone actually win a half a million dollars. And, and I don't recommend you wasting all of your money on this. But this is such a similar idea, this parable, this, this man finds a treasure, just stumbles upon a treasure, just wasn't looking for it, but just happens to come across it, and, and, and it possesses the value of what was inside. It's such a, such a, a storyline that we resonate with. We have myths of pirates burying their treasures. We hear stories of people demolishing their walls only to find the previous owner had lined the walls with money. That one story from 19... Uh, I think it was 89, where a person bought a painting for $4 at, an, at a flea market and found out that there was one of 24 original copies of the Declaration of Independence from 1776 in the backside of it. We, we love these stories. And uh, Jesus has a story here where two people have set out. One is a person walking through a field. Another is a merchant. And one, the man walking in the field, he stumbles upon the treasure and in Jesus' day, this seems, a little, this seems weird to us to just stumble upon a treasure. I mean, we've got a field back there. I have no idea what's in it, but feel free to look. Um, but we don't do this today, right? If you have treasure, where do you keep your treasure? You don't have to answer out loud because apparently you're all are skeptical. All right. I keep mine at the bank, all right? It's very secure. They ask for an ID, so... Uh, but the banking system in Jesus' day wasn't that developed. Actually, if you had wealth, you would, you would divide it up three ways. This was <laughs> Jewish investment strategies in antiquity. You would take um, a third of it, and you would convert it into the coinage of whatever governing, ruling empire was a, you were a part of at the time. You would take another third of it, and you would convert it into jewelry. Not because it looked pretty, but because if you got invaded, you could, in a flash, grab everything you own, put it on, and scram. And you would take a third of it, and you'd go find a secure spot that nobody else knew about. And you would bury it, or you would hide it, or you'd create a false cabinet with a book that would swing the thing open and hide it back there. And so it wasn't uncommon for people to forget 
where they hid the treasure, but also to die and not have told any person which oak tree they buried their, their treasure under. So while this seems really foreign to us, this is just a common occurrence in, in this day, kind of like when people pass away, they leave all their stuff in a storage unit. We can auction those off. And so Jesus is telling a story about a man who had died and left all of his possessions buried in the field and someone stumbles upon it. We know that this person had died because otherwise the field would not have been for sale. And um, notice what he does when he sees the treasure. Says, Jesus says, um, in his, what's that word? In his joy, in his joy, he went and ran. You can read in his joy and, 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 and hear that to mean he went so fast it would make your head spin. And he sold everything. I imagine what wives you would do if your husband came home and um, said, hey, there's a for sale sign on your car. There's a for sale sign in the, in the driveway. There's a for sale sign on all of my tools. There's a for sale sign on everything because I need a little bit of liquid assets because I've got a plan. Wives, wouldn't she be like, whoa, what's the plan? If you have a friend who comes and he's, uh, he comes home and he's all of a sudden just getting rid of everything he has and asks you like, hey, do you need some crock pots? And hey, do you need a grill? And hey, how about this? And I got a swing set. Hey, just take it all. I need, just need some cash really quickly. You'd say, A, are you doing drugs? Or B, what has possessed you? And this man, I wonder as his friends are asking him all of these questions about what are you doing? What are you doing? What are you doing? If, if he's thinking, well, I, I, I can't talk about it right now. I just got to get some money. Just, just, I can't tell you. Because to tell them would be to give up the game. Actually, friend, I found a ton of treasure hidden in that field over there. And the first one that buys the field wins. I'm not going not gonna to do that. And, and so imagine. Imagine not only the monetary sacrifice, but possibly the relational sacrifice that accompanies this discovery. The people giving him the side eye, the people looking at him all strange and wondering, what are you doing? And yet, in his joy, he is so excited about what he has found that he goes. He gives up his former life. He trades in everything that he had, his, his whole entire identity surrounded by. And he goes and he buys the field. He possesses the field. Thus possesses the treasure. How valuable was it? It was worth more than everything his life amounted to. That's how valuable it was. And yet Jesus gives us a complimentary parable that shows us that this other merchant, he's looking for pearls, and he sets out intentionally looking, seeking for his treasure. Um, today, if you want to find pearls, you've got to go to the bottom of the ocean. And to do that, generally, you go take a scuba class. And you, you get all your gear, you learn how to do this stuff, and you get a little light, and you, you, you sink to the bottom, or you swim to the I don't know, I've never taken a scuba. Do you swim? You swim in scuba? Swim to the bottom, and you look around, and you can kind of be down there for a while. Um, not so in Jesus' day. Uh, pearl divers were among the most dangerous profession of the day. Because to get to the bottom of the sea, you would have to anchor yourself around a big rock. And you would take a rock, you'd throw it down, and then you would kind of dive down into the deep darkness where the sea creatures lived, where there was muck, and you would wait around holding your breath, hoping that you don't come up empty. That's kind of where that phrase comes from. And um, if you came up empty, you would cut yourself loose from the, from the rock, and you would swim back up, hoping that you didn't pass out along the way. 
People who were pearl divers were not Harvard-educated silver spoon kids. The people that were pearl divers were the down and out, the desperate, those who were hopeless but wanting to do something about it. They knew there was a fortune at the bottom of the sea, and if they could just possess it, they would do anything to do that. And so we have a picture of this merchant. We don't know if he's a diver or someone who deals in the affairs of those who have already uh, gotten the pearls. I tend to think that he was a person working with a diver trying to find the largest pearl and he stumbles across one, except he doesn't own it. And in his joy, we can infer, he gives everything away so that he can hold on to that one precious pearl. And these days, it's more valuable than gold. You say, Dan, what, what, what does all this mean for us? Well, it, here's what's true about the kingdom is that some of us are on a quest to find value and significance and worth in life. We, we have people in this room who are, you are searching for something, looking for pearls. Notice in, in the text, Jesus says, there was a merchant in search of fine pearls, plural, who on finding one pearl of great value sold everything. I can't help but think of the many people in this room today who are in search of the things that will make them happy, the things that will make them rich, when, friends, there's one, there's one, that you will never be satisfied until you let your heart stop on Jesus Christ, that he is the one pearl of great price. He is the one true source of wisdom and encouragement and love and satisfaction in this world. That you can bounce from city to city, from relationship to relationship, from job to job, from career to career, looking for all the things that you think will satisfy, but until you find Christ, you will always be left empty and on a quest. He is the one you are looking for. But I'm also reminded that Jesus is saying some people are out there looking for the kingdom, and they will find it. Be rest assured, if you look for it, you'll find it. But others... We're not looking for it, and yet stumbled across it. I think about so many stories, like my grandpa Otto, who answered the knock on his door one day, and there was the kingdom presenting itself to him, a treasure so valuable that he gave up much in his life to follow after Jesus. I think of so many people in this room who that's their story. They weren't looking for it. They didn't know how to find it. They didn't even know who God was or if there was a God. And yet one day the gospel was presented. One day they heard that Jesus Christ is God who came to earth, who loves the world so much that he gave up his own flesh and blood and his life for your sin. And he was crucified on the cross because he wanted to take care of the penalty you owed to God for sin. And yet, he is such a powerful God that he didn't stay dead, but he rose from the dead, and he conquered death, and he defeated sin, and he offers to anyone who believes in him new life. For some of us, we hear that, we weren't looking for it, but in our hearts, we responded, and we knew immediately the value of that kingdom. We knew this is greater than anything else I've ever seen in my life. I must have this, this is such joy that I can be forgiven but why is the kingdom of God so valuable and so powerful? Because it's the only answer that we have in this world to the problems that we all face in sin and death. 
Uh, Some of us in here have been pardoned by judges but still walk out of a courtroom and we feel guilty over the things that we've done in our lives and only Jesus can take care of that. And all of us here at one day will breathe our last breath. But those who have faith in Christ will recognize that death is not the end, it is just the beginning. Because Christ's death and resurrection paves the way for those who possess the kingdom to have their death lead to their resurrection. The kingdom can be possessed only through ultimate sacrifice. It's when we recognize the value of the kingdom that we're willing to give up everything. For some of us, this message of the gospel came to us at a point in our lives where we were at rock bottom and we had nothing to give. And so for us, the easy answer was, I'm I'm busted, I have nothing, so Jesus, come, please help. Miraculous it is every time a heart turns to God. But there are others, including in here, who have made much of your lives, have accumulated great wealth, have worked hard to get to where you are in your company or in your field or with your family. And the idea of giving up what you've worked hard for terrifies you. Why would someone do that? Because they found something better. Because they found something more valuable. God is not a God who asks you to come and to give up everything that you have, your ambitions, your will, your desires, and follow him in his kingdom, only so that he can disappoint you. He's not a bad deal kind of God. He is a loving, generous, benevolent God who far exceeds our wildest imaginable expectations with his kingdom. And friends, if you're here today thinking, I've, I've got all of this that I don't want to give up. I've made so much out of my life. Why would I give it over to a guy I can't even see? It's because our God is the infinite God of infinite power and love. And he has something better for you. The kingdom is possessed by your ultimate sacrifice, saying, God, you can have my life. And I wonder, what today is holding you back from experiencing the power of the kingdom in your life? I wonder if you've been presented with the treasure that you found or the, the one that, you've, that has been presented to you and, and, and yet you see God needs your life and you go, that's too big of a sacrifice. Well, you can try all you want, but until you yield your soul to God, you let him forgive your sin, you, you, you entrust him with your future, you don't have it. I love these parables because they're the gospel. This is the way the gospel works. We can see how the kingdom power and kingdom possession take place in this life. Because you could read this another way. You could understand that there is a merchant. It's not you, it's not me, but his name's Christ. And he was in search of the one, one pearl that he loved that was most valuable to him. And you remember John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. That to possess his people would require ultimate sacrifice. And in his joy, Philippians says, for the joy that was set before him, he laid down his life. He looked at the cross and he scorned its shame. And we recognize that in this parable is actually the way Jesus saves us. 
because he came to seek and to save that which was lost, you and me, so that we might possess the kingdom and his power. Would you pray with me? Father, help us never to grow weary of appreciating the value of your sacrifice. Help us never grow weary of seeing the value of your kingdom. Father, help us to worship you for all that you are, for all that you've done, for the many ways in which you reveal yourself to us. Father, I pray for those here who have yet to give their life fully over to you. Father, may you be calling them. May you be uh, wooing their hearts, showing them how great you are, how amazing you are, how amazing is your forgiveness, how life-changing is your love. Father, for us who are a part of your kingdom, who are your disciples, may we never grow disillusioned or full of fear for what is happening, but may we rest assured knowing that there's incredible power in apparent insignificance and that we possess your kingdom through your ultimate sacrifice. Father, we're grateful for your words. Help us to know what to do with what's been said. It's in your name we pray. Amen.